Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter of James, Wisdom for Wholeness. Here, James uses Old Testament wisdom literature, as well as teaching from his own half-brother Jesus, to call the church throughout the age to a life wholly devoted to God. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life, so as to make people complete in him. Uh, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Uh, wonderful, wonderful time for Christians who actually have an object to thank or a person to thank. Uh, unlike the world who is just thankful to something out there, um, we know that our Lord and Savior was also the one who created the world and all that we enjoy. Um, so what a wonderful time for us. A, a true holiday of to the Lordness. <laughs> to, it is to our God that we're thankful. Let's read verse 7 through 18. We'll pray and we'll begin to talk through James. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you, <clears throat> so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my, brethren, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it may not rain, and for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. May God add his blessing to the reading of the word. Let's pray. We truly want your blessing, God. May you use the foolishness of preaching to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ throughout the earth. We humbly ask that you would take this time, that you would give us ears to hear, you give us lowly, meek hearts that need to receive, and that humbly submit to your word. I pray that your spirit would be actively working, that these words would be words of life. Lord, that they would not be those that condemn us, but rather that we trust you and find our sufficiency in you. And Jesus Christ's righteousness covers us so that on the day of judgment, we might be seen as right before God. I pray that our time together would instruct us in righteousness and as we practice what we are in Jesus. May we obey. May you give us truth and may we follow. We submit to you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we talked about big picture, all of life patience. We talked about steadfastness. 
He over and over again, he gave us that structure. If you remember, I popped up on the screen. He gave us two big commands for patience, but then he followed them with warnings. In verses seven and eight, he said, be patient. But then he gave us this warning against sinful speech, which was don't grumble against each other. Then he gave us another one, taking the example of patience in the prophets who are steadfast and waiting. And then he gave us another one of these warnings. And he said, don't make these elaborate promises or these oaths that you're going to have a very hard time fulfilling. So in that time, he both encouraged us to righteous patience, but then he also warned us against this sinful speech, right? Today, he's not going to leave us there with a negative understanding or what not to do. He is going to swing it back and tell us what we should do in Christian speech, how we ought to talk. Instead of just telling us what not to do, he is going to lead us into understanding how we should use our tongues, how they should come off to the rest of the world, but more importantly, to him. James doesn't leave us hanging out there with not knowing what to do. We're coming to the end of this sermon letter. And if you, if you know anything about this, you, you read to the end of chapter five and it's almost like there was a period there and then like it just stopped. It's very abrupt. And you're wondering, did he just run out of things to say and he just stops there, he puts a period and that's the end. I can assure you he's got a little bit more to it than that. And the only reason we know that is because of the content. When, we, when, I, when I preach or you hear a sermon, normally by the end you're going to hear some sort of exhortation or some sort of encouragement or admonishment to, to live a certain way. At the end of an epistle, like when we're reading one of these epistles of Paul or Peter or James, we're going to have some sort of an admonition to prayer, or maybe he is praying for them, and he's usually doing some sort of a blessing for physical health or spiritual health. We have those two modes, preaching, like a sermon, and the epistle kind of coming together. And James can't just let it be to give us some sort of a form ending. Instead, what he is going to do is bring them together and understanding a bigger picture of saying, let me finish out by preaching to you. <laughs> he can't kind of like help himself. He has to make sure he finishes by saying, and this is what I mean by this. Instead of just saying grace and peace to you, brothers, I hope for the best health for you and you ought to pray, he says these things. And he's going to give us more admonition and actually more encouragement to call out on God. Uh, again, if he had said something like this, pray at all time, brothers. May God grant you good health and spiritual vitality. Amen. That would have been good. Now, we have a lot of, like, of Paul's stuff that it ends very abruptly like that, but it's a good ending. But again, James is more pastoral, and he'll walk us right to the end, helping us understand each piece. And he understands that faith works itself out. And so he's going to pastor us right to the end. Let's look at verse 13 and 14. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. If you notice, he starts out with this interesting little rhetorical device, right? He starts with three questions that are followed with like these imperatives, like this is what you ought to do about it. He starts out asking the Christians, who are among you are suffering? Then he says, who among you are cheerful? And then lastly, he says, who among you are sick? When we talk about suffering, this is probably a pretty general concept. We'd understand this to be possibly persecution. We've known that from the context of James overall. But it's not limited to only external physical persecution. This could be suffering that's in your own heart, struggle, your own sin as well. And he says to them, anyone who is suffering, he's going to have an answer for them. What about this idea of cheerful? 
This is a disposition. I mean, the attitude that keeps kind of a chin up despite the goods and the bads. It's a positive way at looking at circumstances, understanding the larger picture. That's this idea of cheerfulness. Then lastly, this idea of, is there any among you that are sick? We are talking about physical illness here. It's, a, it's very straightforward. Uh, there's a couple different words, but this one is just straightforward. Are you sick? And this is usually going to point us to that this is a pretty serious sickness, because look what he says to do about it. Have the elders come and pray over you. This guy can't even bring himself to the elders. He's probably bedridden, probably something of a pretty serious sickness. He's to call the elders to pray for them. So, but now the question is, what are the responses? So these are the three rhetorical questions he's asking. The first thing he says is a, is, a, is a response, is a command. He tells the suffering to do what? To pray. Pray for what? We have to ask, because he doesn't tell us, right? He always says, is, let the suffer, the one who suffers, pray. So most likely I would think one of the first things that we would pray for is relief. We want the suffering to be over. We want that to be done with. But James teaches us better. We've seen over and over again that James isn't looking for earthly relief. Uh, in 1.5, in James chapter 1, verse 5, he said to the person enduring trials that if you lack wisdom, you should ask for it and God will give it to you. Wisdom, not relief. Hmm. How about in verse 15 of chapter 4? We learn that we ought to pray and say things like, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Huh. Letting it up to the Lord and he decides what happens. Instead of saying, here's my plan, God. Now you bless it and I'll go back and do it. Instead, the first thing out of the righteous man's lips are, if the Lord wills. Submitting to his will. James has shown us over and over again that he is far more concerned with our steadfast response to trials than he is about us getting out of those trials. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about because you're in the midst of a trial right now. And you do, as we talked about earlier in James, want to make it a temptation that you would consume and feel sorry for yourself or wallow in it. James doesn't direct us there. Remember, guys, he reminds us that what this is for is our steadfastness, for our belief, for us to trust him and him alone because he knows better. I promise you he knows better than you do. Psalm 34 says this. I want you to hear this because this is how he views the righteous who suffer. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. James tells us that our God cares about sufferings and that we must pray and call on him asking for endurance asking for increased faith to believe that he is actually good. Because it's in these times where we're so tempted to think that he's not a good God if he doesn't answer the way that we want him to answer. He tells them the cheerful to sing a psalm. Or I said, it says sing a praise. But the literal understanding here is sing a psalm. One of these that are in our Psalter in the book of Psalms. God is not only concerned about when we need him that we should call on him, but rather all of the time. He is saying then, James is helping us remember, that it's not only in the time that we call out to him in need that God is praised, because it certainly is. It shows our inability and his supreme ability. It shows our dependence on him. But James says to the guy that understands the bigger picture of life and is cheerful, 
You ought to sing a song of praise to the one who made it so wonderful, the one who's in control of all things. In praise, we understand that all of life is from our great God and that he is deserving of both spoken and here sung words. Brothers and sisters, how often do you simply sing a praise to God on your own? When you're doing your own quiet time or time when you're reading scripture and praying, how often do you spend a moment to sing one song to God in praise to him? Or perhaps maybe just you and your husband or wife or your family or friends, one or two brothers where you collect around and say, let us bless God with a praise song. That ought to actually categorize us. That should be what we do. That should be normal for us. That's not a weirdo thing to do. Remember that we don't sing for the sake of sounding good. It's not a performance. We don't sing just so that we can get the music part out. We sing as a praise to God. He's the only one in all of the world who's actually worthy of praise sung to him. And so James brings us to a point and says, hey, you need to be reminded that you need to praise God with your voices, a musical sound, a if I can say a joyful noise. I know not everyone has a great voice. That's okay. That doesn't mean that you're like out, that you're off the hook if you're bad at singing. Sing a praise to God. It's a joyful noise. He is worthy. The cheerful one ought to sing praise. Then James finally tells the sick one to call for the elders of the church to pray for him. But he says more than that, right? He says, call on the elders of the church to pray over him, anointing this person with oil in the name of the Lord. We've had these like really quick commands and the response has been really simple. Pray, uh, sing praise. But this one is like a whole process that he gives to us. If you're sick, call the elders, have them pray over you, having them anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. In this case, the, the sick person is told to share his burden, his pain with the body and specifically with the shepherds who care for their soul. They are, again, remember that they are in a community, a body of believers. And as we said before, this person is probably dealing with something pretty serious. This most likely isn't a cold. This is probably some sort of bedridden sickness. It's very difficult for them to do anything. Now, what you would think here, you'd like to see James say something like, hey, we want everyone to be safe, so call the doctor first, make sure you're okay, and then we'll come and pray for you. But he's not really encouraging that. He doesn't say anything about a doctor here. Stop for a moment. Does that mean, then, that James is discouraging or forbidding the use of medicine? No, not at all. This is not a text for us to be anti-physicians or anti-medicine. Remember that God gave these as good gifts. The gift of medicine and the gift of doctors who help in the healing process, that's a good grace to us. That's a good thing for us to show uh, our trust in him and his processes using natural means. That's what doctors do. We ought to understand, though, that there's a bigger picture. James is helping us to understand that a Christian ought to have wisdom. He ought to understand that God is over all things, even physical sickness. Uh, again, like I said, this has nothing to do with like promotion of faith healing services where we all come in and we get healed. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. If you look here, see the direction? He says, bring the elders to you to pray over you. So make sure we get that right. Uh, this is not about being anti-medicine whatsoever. He's directing us to first things first, helping us understand the bigger picture. And by his grace, he's helping us understand that even medicine is God's science. 
It's his to deal with what he wants. It's his process. If you think about a broken bone, right? A doctor, if you come, they come in and your, and, your, and your hand is just bent down. He comes and he does not lay his beautiful, healing, magic hands on you and make it better. What does he do? He aligns it. He sets it. It's painful to get it back where it's supposed to be. He immobilizes it by putting whether a splint or perhaps a cast on your hand so that you can't do it. Maybe he gives you a sling and says, hold still. Don't do anything with this hand for a couple weeks. Why? Because the doctor can't do anything about that thing, putting it back together. He knows it's God who actually puts all the molecules and forms that bone back together, that scar tissue that builds back up and strengthens the bone again. The doctor doesn't heal you. God does. And so for us to put any trust in medicine is foolishness. That does not mean, like I said before, that we are anti-medicine. It is a good gift from God. But James helps us understand the bigger picture, that all those good gifts fit into his world. It's God's world. And so what he tells us is call for the elders because you have a bigger problem. We need you to submit to God first and foremost. Here James is more concerned, like I said, about the bigger picture. He calls for community action of dependence on God, not a magic show. This isn't some snake oil healer that's coming through town on a, on a peddling his wares. These are the elders coming to pray. When the elders come, all their actions, if you notice this, are God-centered. They are lovingly praying over this person. They recognize that God is the only one that can change them. He's in charge, and he's the one that will work. They anoint this person with oil, what, which what I will suggest is a type of consecration to God. Again, a God-centered activity. This is not, as some would suggest, like the man excuse me, who helped heal the Samaritan. This, that's not, or the Samaritan helped heal the, heal the man along the road to Jericho, where he poured the wine and the oil onto his wounds. That's not what's happening here. It's not as though the elders are part elders, part medical doctors, and they're helping soothe. I don't think that's quite right here. What we are seeing is a broader use that the way that we see Scripture use this term oil, and more importantly, anointing with oil. The Bible uses it several ways, but when we talk about anointing, anointing, he is using it in language of consecration for a purpose of setting apart a person for the Lord's purposes. So when this happens, we got to think about stuff like the, the priests. Back in Exodus 28, 41, they were consecrated, they were anointed, and set apart for the Lord's purposes, specifically service. But Think of the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is consecrated, set apart for God's service. Isaiah 61.1 talks about this. Or let me read from Psalm 45. The psalmist says this, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness. The term is used for, for Jesus and his anointing, but also for Christians throughout the, Old, from the New Testament. Anointed for God's purposes. So, what is James referring to here? I would humbly submit that what he is doing is an act of consecration to God, a handing over of this person to God. It's symbolic of us saying, God, we are praying this way, but we are anointing, setting this person aside for your purposes. And it reminds us then, helping the community see that this person has been given over to God for his purposes, to do his work on his terms and in his time. It is kind of like prayer, actually. 
in a sense that we give that over to God. We can't do anything about it, so we set it apart for him. And then after the anointing oil, James says that they are to do this in the name of the Lord. This is not some sort of special power, or it's not in this passage at all a gift. That's not what this is about. In fact, it's actually for the office of elder. These elders are to come and do this thing. And what they're to do is not in and of themselves. It is not self-promoting. None of them can take responsibility for the healing, but they did it. Rather, it is in the name of the Lord as they speak these things and these prayers over them. Now, if you pull back a little bit, notice that each of these different commands, right? The first question, second question, third question, the responses all have the same direction. Let them pray, let them praise, let them pray for healing. Where are these all going to? The prayer, the praise, the prayer are all going to God. They are thoroughly God-centered. If you notice, each of these imperative responses point to the direction of God himself. None of them say, hey, get tough. Come on, grit it out, grin and bear it. You can make it through. This is kind of like your spiritual act of labor to kind of meet God where he's at. He deserves this from you. No. James directs us instead into the loving, able hands of a sovereign Lord and compassionate Father. What did we just learn last week? That he's compassionate and merciful. He directs us back here. The one who is the father of lights, he told us earlier. The one who doesn't change. The one who gives every good and perfect gift. The one who of his own will brought us forth by the word of truth. This is our God. And James tells us and calls us to Christian speech, which is an action to show that our dependence, faith, is in a compassionate and loving Father. But notice the result of such Christian behavior. Look at verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. James says that the prayer of faith will save the sick person. And then he gives credit to the worker. The Lord will raise him up. The results... You know, this result helps us kind of iron out some of our causal questions. Where is this coming from? What's the cause of this saving? It isn't the elders who save the sick. It isn't the anointing oil that saves the sick. It isn't even the in the name of the Lord prayer, like the, like the, the, the actual speaking out of this. Instead, it is the prayer of faith that is the one that is working. Simple dependence on God in prayer. If you haven't noticed in these first three verses already, we have three times where he has highlighted prayer. He says that it is the prayer in action, the Christian speak of, of talking to God, asking him to intervene that makes a difference in the situation. Not if you put the oil on the head correctly. He says it's the prayer of faith. But then he clarifies. This isn't just a recitation of a prayer. Um, this isn't just saying holy words over and over again. This is a prayer of faith. One that comes out of a heart that believes, that trusts God. Now, what does that mean, though? There are many within our Christian culture who want to twist this verse and make it all about something special that the prayer did, that the person did. And if they had the right amount of faith, then they got this done. This, 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 this deathly doctrine, this deadly line of Christian thinking teaches that if a person prays in faith, he will be healed. But if he prays and the sick one isn't healed, well then, 
person's faith just really wasn't enough. You know, they just didn't have enough and they have weak faith. So it's really on you. It's kind of your, your fault. I would warn you against this teaching, brothers and sisters. It is extremely dangerous. This type of teaching takes our eyes off of our all-sufficient healer and puts them on us to muster up the faith to meet them halfway. And if we can get there with the right amount of faith, with the strong enough faith, we really, really, really believe, then, then God can use it. And now he can heal. Do you see what happens, though, when we do this? He pulls us away from what we ought to be doing is having our eyes on Christ and we start looking at ourselves to see if we have enough to get the job done. You see that this teaching encourages us to steal the glory of God instead of casting all of our anxieties, all of our cares on him because he cares, he's the one doing. Instead, it causes us to put on ourselves and make sure we get there so that we can actually get healing. And thus, it takes God's glory away from him. And so that we have something to boast in. We had enough faith to make it happen. This teaching, then, is a type of works sanctification. And thus, we reject it. But the question comes, okay, Chris, I see what you're talking about. But isn't this like a, this passage, isn't it like a promise that the prayer of faith will definitely save a person from sickness? I mean, that's what it kind of reads like. I'll say no. This is not an unqualified promise of total restoration of the sick. Remember our context. If you were to rip the rest of James away and you just saw that little verse, it certainly seems like that. We can't do that. You must make sure that you take James in his context. Everyone should be taken in their context. James is no exception. We have to understand that he is trying to do something larger. He is teaching us the value of Christian prayer and singling out prayer rather than oil, rather than laying on of hands, as the mode of Christian action for dependence on God. In our time here, even as we've spent through James, we've seen James, he never expects a specific answer. What he always does is he prays for things like patience, for whatever comes, steadfastness through the trials. He's the one that tells us, if the Lord wills. And it puts it back to God to say, you are the good one, and you will do what is right, even if I don't like it. I know that you are good. And what he constantly encourages us to do is not specifically pray for one outcome that we want, but rather to pray what the Lord wills. It is for us then to bear up under these trials in faith and trust and reliance on him to the building up of our faith and steadfastness. Last week, if you remember this, his whole argument was based on the fact that Jesus Christ is coming soon and that the end is sure and that there will be an end, the ultimate end in Jesus. He wins. And so we can live this life under trial, under struggle, knowing that this is not the end and that he will come. And so to pray specifically only for this healing seems to miss the point. Our posture is one of humble submission to the purpose and plan of God, even when we ask for relief, and we should. Paul did this in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9. He said, A thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul asked in faith for his sufferings to stop. 
But God's answer was no. No. Does that mean that Paul's faith was, was weak? No, it does not mean that. It was God's design, whether Paul understood it or not. And if you think that Paul's maybe a poor example, okay, let's look at Matthew 26. Jesus prays, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, referring to the wrath of God being poured out on him. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The posture is, Lord, what do you want? Why? Because you're the king. You're the one who created me. You're the one that rescued me from the depths of my sin, and you gave me new life. So, what do you want? You're the one that will carry me to the end. You are the sweet and perfect and pearl of great price. And so I want to ask, Lord, what do you want? That's what Jesus did. He didn't lack faith. That was not why the Lord, that God spared him. He did not spare him. Instead, what did God answer? We know it from Isaiah. My will is not to cease this. It is my will to crush you. Praise God that he did. This is our grace to us that he crushed the son so that we might have reconciliation with the father. It is at this point that we must step back and realize that there is much larger things going on than our present circumstances. That adage, your ways are not my ways, makes sense here. He's in control. We are very small, as James has shown us already. You don't know it, but God is doing something that is outside of your vision. And James calls us then to pray, trusting God alone. Let's finish the verse. Something wonderful happens here. He says this, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, it's possible, and it's actually through Scripture we see this happen, it's possible that sin can cause illness, Probably not in a ton of our cases, but it certainly is attested throughout Scripture. And regardless, we should always be looking to live a blameless lifestyle before the Lord. If an elder were to come to you in your sickness, at your sick, maybe it's at, maybe it's at the hospital bed, maybe it's in hospice, I don't know, or, or something, we're praying that God would do that. They should ask you this question, brother, I love you. Do you have any unconfessed sins? Not because they want you to like treat them like, like, like they, we are some sort of Roman Catholic priest and you need to confess all your stuff. That's not what's going on here. We want to know and ask you and shepherd your souls to say, there should not be anything between you and God. And if there is, you ought to confess and make it right. Repent of your sin and know union with God, with Jesus Christ, and relationship between each other. Remember then, this is not an elder trying to pry into your life or trying to know all your dirty secrets. Not at all. Neither does it mean, again, like you have to confess in some sort of booth that we tell everything. An elder who asks these types of questions cares for your soul. And they care about shepherding you, and you should be thankful, and you should consider these questions seriously. James says, then, that this process continues, and if it's true that there's sin in a believer's life, there will be forgiveness in this process. In the process of physical healing, there's a very strong element of importance for spiritual healing. Obviously, the, the elder doesn't grant forgiveness. Only God does that. The elder simply acts as the shepherd, guiding the Christian back to the good shepherd, praying for his soul and for his body to be healed. Now, we've looked at verse 13 through 15. We realize that James is saying that in all cases, all of them right now, a Christian ought to do one thing, pray. 
Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 6.18. He says this, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Ephesians 6.18. James has called us to pray for endurance. He's called us to pray a praise of, to God or pray for sickness and spiritual health. All of these things show us that a proper Christian response of a patient person looks like a life of prayer. That's what our life should look like. This leads us then to the second half of our passage. This is where it kind of, it's easy to get on and now we understand what's going on and it kind of rolls downhill from here what's going on. This is where we jump on and say, okay, James, what do you want us to do about this? Verse 16, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Why should you and I uh, do this? We already found out we're supposed to do this according to God's will. But more importantly, what should we do now that we know this is true? Well, follow the things. If you're suffering, you should pray. If you're cheerful, you should praise God and sing. If you're sick, you should call the elders to pray for you. James gives us really good advice on how to react to all of life's twists and turns. But at this point, he wants us to go from a reactive prayer to a proactive prayer. James prescribes almost a type of preventative medicine, one that has the regular rhythm of doing these things we've just talked about. But there's something else in these commands that's different. If you look at it, there's one major change from the first three verses. It's the object. No longer is it praying about things in your own life, suffering, cheerfulness, sickness. Now it's concerned with other believers in the church. Notice this. He says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. He has turned from looking inward to looking outward. He's gone from piety to charity. He's gone from showing people how to obey the first commandment, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and mind, to the next one, love your neighbor as yourself, to pray for those that are around you. He tells the believer to confess their sin and there's a connection here between confessed sin and healing, both physically and spiritually. If we desire then this regular healing, we must confess our sin, both to God and to one another. If you notice in our liturgies, they always contain a prayer of confession. It happened this morning. Matt prayed a prayer of confession for us this morning. It is on purpose. We need to acknowledge to one another our sin before God, a holy, righteous God. It's important for us to see these things. And confession at its simplest form is a recognition of sin and calling it what it is, sin. An affront to God. To confess is, this, is really to say the same thing about sin that God says about sin. It's an affront to his holiness. It's an affront to his character. And what it should do is lead us to repentance then and to turn from that and turn to God. It is right then for us to ask God to give us hearts of repentance and faith as we strive to obey him. Guys, he alone is the one that can change a wicked heart. Only him. And thus we pray for this. How often do you confess your sin to one another? Whether it's in your life groups, your community groups, or just to your spouse and family. How often do you pray for one another? I'm not just talking about bless the missionaries and the people that are sick. I'm talking about prayers where we would go to bat, go to prayer, go to ask God to help each other. 
we'd ask God to grow those brothers and sisters in our church body, asking for his grace, asking for his mercy on their life, asking that each other would look more like Jesus. How often is that your prayer, a regular prayer of yours? At the end of verse 16, James just comes right out and says it. What we've all kind of been thinking this whole time. All this talk about prayer and all that it does for the Christian who trusts God, and we finally get to this powerhouse statement on prayer. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Let me ask you this. Who among us is righteous? I have good news for you. If you trust and submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you are the righteous. And it is not your filthy rags that makes you righteous. It is Jesus Christ alone and his righteousness. And so this is a statement for us. This is ours. If you are a believer and trust Jesus Christ, this, the prayer of a righteous person, has great power as it is working. Again, it is not for the super spiritual person. Prayer is the working agent of every single Christian. And it is powerful. Now, perhaps not maybe in the, in the way that we might think about it, but it is powerful at doing the most important thing, the will of God. That ought to excite us because it helps us know that God will gain glory and he will do what he wills when we pray and trust him to do what is right. Do not prize flashy or the amazing or the experiential things. Certainly God works in miraculous ways. And there's not anything wrong with that. It's wonderful. But remember that he also works through process and progress. He has ordained very ordinary means to bless his people. Specifically, he has ordained the means of prayer for the healing and growth of the saints. This is wonderful news. Lastly, let's look at the example for this type of prayer. Verse 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. That picture is almost like it was waiting for the rain. As soon as the rain came, it popped and it blossomed wide open. It sprouted. James pulls an example here of a well-known prophet, Elijah. The readers knew it. We know him. James makes a point, though, right at the beginning, that Elijah was made up of the same stuff that we are. He has a nature just like ours. He was a man like us, but he was a man that prayed. He took this command seriously to pray and talk to God. And what happened? God did powerful things. He prayed for no rain, and he gets huge results Three and a half years of no rain. I mean, we're talking about drought of judgmental proportions. And then he prayed again, and we know what happened. The rain came, and it was enough to make the earth sprout and bring forth fruit. It's very easy for us to kind of get enamored by Elijah's great abilities and all that he's done, but that's not supposed to be what we're getting here. The point is simple and clear. Elijah didn't take a big stick and waft it over the land or he didn't strike a rock, or he didn't throw dust into the air and do some sort of miracle. He prayed. That's the same agent that you and I have access to, to prayer, to talking to God. That's why James brings Elijah up. He has done this, and he calls us to prayer the same way. He prayed, and God responded. Likewise, let us pray in faith, 
trusting God to work how he wills. We've learned the proper posture. We learned this last time. If the Lord wills. We've learned that. We get it. We've got that solidified. But now he calls us to not just be like, well, whatever happens, happens. We're not fatalists. He calls us to pray. And so it is right for us to call. So let us pray for steadfastness and for faith and for wisdom. Let us pray for healing and for God's blessing, ever trusting that God will always do what is right. Let us be confessing our sins to one another, ready to acknowledge our sin against him in our need for God. Let us pray for one another, for spiritual growth, for strength in the battle to fight against sin, guys. Man, do I want you to pray for me. Please pray for me. I'll bet you kind of, when you really think about it, you want the same thing. Let us pray for one another that way as though we actually are in a fight, a spiritual warfare. Let us pray that we would trust God in every situation. Prayer is a work. It is. It is a work that springs out of faith. It is a work that rightly acknowledges and praises the God who is worthy. So brothers and sisters, let us pray fervently. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your grace. It is more than we deserve. We deserve to be finished, condemned, judged. But Jesus died for us. We thank you for your care, your constant work in us to bring us to completion. This teleos idea that you are making us whole, complete in Christ, mature. I pray that you would teach us to be holy as you are holy. We find great comfort in knowing that, God, you are the one who is at work in us. We love you in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For other sermons on the book of James and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.